Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 23. It happens to be the reading for the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany in the Year C cycle of the lectionary. It is one of the lectionary texts to be read on February 13, 2022. This text from Luke's Gospel outlines for us what is a very familiar text in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we don't spend very much time with this version of Luke's story about what is called the Beatitudes. Now, when we talk about this text, we're going to start first by looking at how the, the Beatitudes are set up and how they're set up differently from what we see in the Gospel of Matthew. So in verses 17 to 19, we hear how things become set for this story that unfolds about Jesus's preaching. It's really about the hopes and the dreams of the people who gather around Jesus. Now, most are, of course, familiar with Matthew's version of the story, the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke's story here departs from Matthew's version in several ways. Luke has Jesus, for example, returning from the mountains with his disciples, whereas Matthew's version of the sermon is a sermon literally set on the mount. Luke addresses a larger crowd than what is described in Matthew. Here in Luke, we find three different groups gathered around Jesus. There's the 12 that he's returned from the mountain with, this large crowd of disciples, and then another large crowd of those who have just come to hear him. Luke describes it in verse 17 with these words. He says, Jesus came down with them, that is the disciples, and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon. This is just the beginning of the differences between Luke's version of the story and Matthew's version of the story. And these differences aren't just important from a kind of a scholarly or academic viewpoint. They're, they're differences in terms of what Luke is trying to tell us about this moment in Jesus's ministry and how it will set the stage for so much of what is to come after this. It says in the text, according to Luke, that Jesus came and stood on a level place. Now, you can go today and visit a place like this in uh, Palestine. You could actually possibly even visit the place where it happened today at what is called the Church of the Beatitudes. We're not sure where this occurred, but most think it's somewhere in that northwestern region of the Sea of Galilee uh, where you can go visit today. There are these three groups there, the 12, the crowd of his disciples, and the great multitude. And it says in the text that people came seeking essentially two things from Jesus. First, they were seeking healing, and the second, they were seeking deliverance. The way Luke frames it, it says that those who come to hear him in verse 18 and to be healed of, his, of their diseases and those who were troubled by unclean spirits were being cured. Luke's context is powerful and it talks about how Jesus were trying to, how people were trying to touch Jesus and he was healing everyone who did. This is really the first episode of mass healing and teaching uh, of Jesus's ministry in Luke's gospel. So he really sets the stage for this well. Luke's context is powerful. Jesus returns from the mountains with this crowd waiting for him and people are eager and seeking the wholeness that can that Jesus can bring them. These Just these three verses 
help us see the, the hopes and the dreams and the longings that people had. And that opens up for us the first key passageway here, that God receives and shares in our hopes and dreams. The Jesus depicted in Luke's gospel is one who deeply engages with the afflicted and the marginalized. Uh, this crowd is well-intended. They authentically come seeking Jesus and knowing full well what they needed from him. And this is how we are called to come to God, not groveling necessarily, but authentically. Sometimes we're tempted to think of presenting ourselves to others in what we would often view as presentable terms. We want to look good for other people. This is a God who welcomes us as we are if we will truly be who we are. These people came authentically, holding their brokenness, holding their marginalization, holding their pain, and they bring that authentically to Jesus, and he engages them. God longs to share in our true hopes and dreams for liberation and healing if we're willing to be honest about what our true hopes and dreams really are. Jesus then, according to Luke's version of this story, moves into this proclamation that happens on the plain, if you will, this flat area where Jesus is going to be teaching. In Matthew's gospel, it's the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke's gospel, it's the Sermon on the Plain. And it's really, this section of scripture here is in two parts. There are these blessings, and then there are these woes. And we're going to talk about them one at a time. So let's look at the blessings first. It's verses 20 to 23. Now, Matthew includes nine Beatitudes altogether. Luke only has four, and he includes the four opposing woes that go with the four Beatitudes he's included. Now, Matthew, he leaves all the woes out altogether. We don't find any woes in Matthew's version of the Beatitudes, while Luke uses some of the same statements that Matthew does. They're different in their phrasing and their order. So, what we can see here from the very beginning is that Luke is drawing us into the story in a very different way. So the first thing we have to pay attention to is the word for blessing or blessed. We see in verse 20 and onward, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, blessed are you when people hate you, blessed are you when you know, you're weeping. These, this word for bless or blessing is different from Matthew's version. Matthew uses a word that's usually used in worship or liturgy, to refer like the blessing of God or to be blessed by God. Whereas Luke's version of this word, he uses a completely different Greek word. Luke's word means fortunate. Almost we could describe it as lucky. Uh, happiness might be its most literal translation. What Luke is telling us is something different from Matthew. Luke is telling us in Jesus's words that there is a a fortune or a luck or a happiness when we're poor, when we're hungry, when we're weeping, and when people hate you. Now, now second, Luke uses the second person, not the third person. Let me give you an idea. This is kind of a grammarian thing, but in Luke's gospel, it says, blessed are you who are poor. The you there, that's the second person, you. Whereas Matthew says, blessed are the poor. You see, that's the third person. 
So what Luke is drawing us into is a deeper intimacy. There's a sense in which in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is kind of talking about this broader ethic, where in Luke's gospel, it really feels like Jesus is speaking to the people that have gathered there and are in his midst. There's an intimacy there, something more relational. Third, there is no allegory or analogous meaning in Luke's statements. And let me explain. Matthew says, for example, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or Matthew says in one of his other Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Luke is much more direct and literally literal. The word for poor doesn't mean poor in spirit here. The word for poor that Luke uses in this text means destitute, as having nothing at all. It's not just impoverished. It's literally to have nothing. The word for hungry means to have no food and have no means to get that food. The word for weeping here means to be grieving or mourning. It's not just a weeping that's situational. It's a, it's a weeping that's born out of a deep sense of loss and mourning and grieving. Now, normally, this state of being poor, hungry, or weeping means that one is actually unfortunate, that often people were thought to be, have been cursed by God if these things were true. And Jesus turns this wisdom on its head. These are now not conditions of a curse, but these are rather now conditions of blessing. Jesus says, you're fortunate if these things are true. You're lucky if these things are true. Here and now, not in the future, right now. So usually this condition of being poor, hungry, or weeping means that one's cursed of God. So what that would be then is that uh, people would hold these people in ill regard. The larger population would marginalize people like this because they were obviously unlucky, which meant to be that they, they were cursed or rejected by God. There's, there's something happening here that's very deep and profound. Jesus is turning the whole way the world works on end. And there's also something here about the presence of the future. He says that they're to jump for joy. There's an approval from God now and in the future. Jesus tells this multitude that's gathered that, that they should jump for joy, that they're in good company because they're just like the prophets who came before them. And that opens up our second key passageway here, that comfort in affliction is found in the presence of the future. A recurring theme in Christian teaching is about perseverance and the capacity to overcome. Often it's interpreted as suffer now and in heaven you'll be able to enjoy later. Now there's a danger here. And the danger is this deference to a future age of thinking that every blessing that God brings comes in a future age. It blunts our action today. Let me explain. Jesus' affirmation of liberation for those who are afflicted today focuses on allowing the future to be realized in the present. He doesn't tell them that you will have the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The call here isn't about the work of bringing the future. It's about, it's about bringing the future reign of God into the very present Jesus doesn't say you will jump for joy. He says you are to jump for joy. So the question we have then is this, is can our faith in the future 
shape our beliefs and our actions in the present. They certainly do for Jesus, but can we summon the same in our life together? Well, finally, we turn to one of the more difficult parts of this passage. It's the woes, of course, verses 24 to 26 in Luke chapter 6. Now, only Luke includes the woes in his version of the Sermon on the Plain. And they each stand as the opposite to the blessings listed above. But they're phrased slightly more directly. I don't want to get too deeply into the, the grammar that's here in these verses, but the woes are much more direct and much clearer in how they're stated in the grammar of this text. There's no inference of ethics here. This is just a declaration of being. It's almost like when you read these verses, the judgment is already assumed and done. Jesus says, woe to you who are rich. And the woe has to do that if you're rich, you're receiving your comfort in full. So you could say, woe to you who are rich because you take comfort among the afflicted. That's complacency. Woe to you who are well-fed, you'll be hungry. Again, complacency. Woe to you laughing because you will weep. That's complacency. The word used even here for laughter in the woe is a different kind of laughter than the, la the word for laughter used above. This word for laughter has to do with the laughter that accompanies the mocking of other people, laughing at others. What Luke is trying to help us understand in Jesus' words here is that the danger about being rich, well-fed, and laughing isn't so much about those conditions per se. It's about the complacency they induce. So Jesus then says, woe to you when people speak well of you. That's just like the false prophets used to experience. The message is sharp. It's unavoidable. It's direct. It's a reality. At issue isn't necessarily the state of being rich, well-fed, and laughing. No. It's the false sense of security and complacency it induces. The danger is the self-absorption it brings. You see, in Jesus's day, being rich, well-fed, and laughing, and people speaking well for you of you, that was, those were signs of blessing in Jesus' day, that somehow God and the cosmos had decided together that you were living a righteous life, that you could conclude, if you were rich, well-fed, and laughing, and people spoke well of you, that you were right with God and right with others, so you must be righteous. And Jesus says here, in many other places, no, be cautious. These are dangerous liabilities to you, being rich, well-fed, and laughing, and people speaking well of you. If you are any of these things and you fail to render aid, compassion, justice, and action, there is trouble ahead. And that's the final key passageway for us this week, that judgment or the woes here are formed in and by my commitment to community and our commitment to community. This text kind of harkens over to Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus tells us about the judgment that will come in the separation of the sheep and the goats. You might remember the passage of scripture where Jesus talks about how when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you gave me something to wear. You see, judgment comes based on how we engage and share 
that which we have. And it's this kind of ethic of community, of how we live life together, it permeates all of Scripture, not just the so-called New Testament. Having wealth, food, and laughter, they're to be shared and given away because they are dangerous if they induce us into a sense of complacency that everything must be good because I'm good. If we use them to assure ourselves of our blessed state, it seems to follow suit that we'll seek more of them so that we can be more blessed. And if that's true, we've completely failed at this enterprise of being a Christian. There's a reason these things are dangerous. They lure us into complacency and rampant individualism. Friends, we're not in this for the living of life for ourselves. And actually, we're not in this for the living of life for others. Friends, we're in it together. And judgment flows from our commitment to this reality. Are we in it together or not? That's the question that every single one of us must struggle with and wrestle with. Whether we're poor or whether we're rich, whether we're hungry, whether we're well-fed, whether we're weeping, whether we're laughing, whether people speak well of us or not well of us. The issue here is how will we live life together? That's it for this week. I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.